Welcome to another episode of The Duck Stops Here, a podcast featuring alumni from the University of Oregon. I'm Michelle Joyce Fife, and today I have the honor of interviewing the writer who created my very favorite Broadway musical. You have 10 minutes from Lights Up to hook the audience and make them care. If you have not given them a reason to care about anything, you've lost them. For the rest of the time, you cannot get them back. That was Jeff Witte. He won a Tony Award for writing the controversial hit musical Avenue Q. Most recently, he wrote the screenplay for the movie Can You Ever Forgive Me, which was nominated for an Academy Award in 2019. Today, he's here to speak with us about his journey from Eugene to Broadway and from Broadway to Hollywood. He'll also tell us some of his rules of storytelling and give us a glimpse into what he's working on now. We are so honored to have him on the show. Here he is, Jeff Witte. How are you doing? How's your pandemic been? It's been okay. You know, I was actually just occupying myself by watching a YouTube video of you in high school doing a Katherine Hepburn impersonation. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. It makes me wish I knew you in high school. That would have been in Coos Bay, right? In Coos Bay. Yes, yes. God, that was a long time ago. How have you been? Oh, you know, I, it's... I was sort of a recluse before this all started, so I had a head start on everybody. <laughs> well, I was I was thinking about you recently because I was actually um, watching Big Little Lies on HBO, and Reese Witherspoon's character was involved in Avenue Q, and the community of Monterey was up in arms because it was inappropriate. And it made me wonder, I mean, that must be based on something. Did that happen around the country? Well, like it's, you know, it's, it's a funny story. I mean, with Big Little Lies, it was really like a phone call. Like, can we put the show on Big Little Lies? And they gave us a bit of money and there was a release we signed and, and gave them permission. And I, it was so cute what they did. I, re- I just loved it. Uh, it's really a weird feeling to have a show that is sort of, well, it's a classic now. I mean, it ran 16 years and it's been done everywhere. It's been done in Coos Bay, Oregon. They did it at the U of O in a rather controversial production. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, the whole experience of that show was 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 the hardest work I ever did, but really, really magical. And, and you know, sometimes a project just has its own karmic energy and you could feel it. And it was like our job was to get out of the way and let the show, you know, you know, make the show really itself. You know, I was reading that Okay, so there were two guys. It was Robert Lopez and Jeff Marks yes. who came up with the original concept. They tried to make it a TV show. It wasn't going to work. They brought you on to make it a play. And I was reading, I love this quote. Um, Jeff Marks um, said that you and he had a healthy disdain for each other. <laughs> <laughs> but he did go on to say that he respected right. your intellect, but that you guys had quite a time trying to come to an agreement about this show it was a healthy disdain <laughs> that's a funny way to put it you know but over the years my god it's been i mean i started on that project in 1999 and and uh it's sort of like being divorced parents like you have the kid and you want what's best for the child and all of us really really put the audience 
as our priority. And it's amazing, even on Broadway, especially on Broadway, where the audience is the last concern. Um, and I love seeing those guys now. I mean, we, we sort of laugh about our, our youthful, there was, it wasn't vain, but there was definitely a cocksureness that was not earned among any of us at that point. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever dynamics were happening, it really worked out pretty well. Uh, wasn't it one of the longest running plays on Broadway? No, it, the, way it, the way it went um, is it opened off Broadway in a 99-seat house called the Vineyard Theater down on Union Square in New York downtown. And uh, it just took off immediately. It was shocking. And they extended it three times. And then clearly they were going to, suddenly we got the announcement, we're going to Broadway. And it's funny because I never saw myself as a person writing a musical. I never dreamed of writing musicals. Uh, you know, when I was at the University of Oregon, it never crossed my mind for a second. I was never one of those kids that listened to musical albums. Uh, was that your first musical? Yes. You won a Tony for it. That's crazy. No, and we will talk about the we'll talk about the first movie I ever wrote too. I know. I watched it last night, actually. Oh, did you? Yes. <laughs> it was incredible. Oh, thank you, my dear. Thank you. Yes, I, I, I have beginner's luck. <laughs> you really do. So, okay, so you won the Tony, but the the play was very controversial. And for anyone who is listening who hasn't seen it. Do you want to describe it? Well, yes. I mean, Avenue Q is the the premise of it is it's like a Sesame Street for adults. Uh, that is, it begins largely in that segmented form of Sesame Street, but then it becomes a full blown musical. And my goal was to make the audience care about the puppets like they were humans. So I worked, you know, it's it, as a as a storyteller, everything is strategizing when you drop information, how you string the threads of, of story through. And I really worked hard to get a point in act two when everyone in the audience went, oh, mm -hmm. <laughs> for a puppet, uh, because they felt so bad for him. And, and uh, you know, that so the, the, the show, the show is called the Potty Mouth Puppet Show, or people talk <laughs> about the swearing and there's a sex scene and there's a song called the internet is for porn and you mm -hmm. know it, it has people think it's full of swear <laughs> words it's only got 13 swear words in it uh but they're very carefully placed for maximum impact because i don't like to use just, oh, that's you know, funny. just toss it off anytime so that's that's the show yes and in regards to, to to wind back to your question about kids uh we were approached to do a a version for high schools a version for schools that was a safe version and I knew immediately, I thought, well, this will be, this will not be, it won't, it won't be easy, but it'll be a, a blast to do because there are only 13 swear words. We'll cut the sex scene and instead, you know, that our two lead puppets kiss. And that's a big deal in high school. And uh, the song, The Internet is for Porn was replaced with a song called My Social Life is Online, which is, you know, this was 10 years ago, but it's more, even more resonant now. Uh, and 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 it's a real charmer. I was really really proud with how how that turned out. The, the high school. That's really cool. It, so the main objection was the swearing. I know that there was um, a parental advisory label slapped on the Broadway album, which I think that was a first. It may have been a first, but it it also, I think there was probably some crafty thinking behind that because people would yes. go, "What? A parental <laughs> advisory? You know." But you know, it's it's more about the com comfort level of the parents than the kids, because kids, 
you know, I wouldn't take a six-year-old to see it, but a 10-year-old, sure, it's nothing they haven't seen before. But there is nothing to match the discomfort of sitting next to your parents when you've <laughs> written the show and they're sitting through the sex scene and all of that. <laughs> no, you know, it's funny because the puppets, I mean, look, acting is difficult enough to get, you know, the audience to buy into your story and everything. And these actors in the show are holding puppets, but you can see that the actors as well. The puppets don't have expressions. Their mouths just basically open and close. And by themselves, yet, they don't. But when they're right. operated by those puppeteers, you know, the four original, the ones that set the, the template were all Henson puppeteers. So what they could do with those puppets was magic, real magic. It was fun watching them train understudies and the replacement actors uh, because it was, we would talk about how the puppets breathe. One of the first lessons you learn is the puppets breathe. So they go up and down and up, you know, very, very subtly. And all of that really brings them to life. But you're right. It's a very limited range of motion yes. when they're just hanging on a hook, you know? Mm -hmm. Was it two years ago now you were uh, on the red carpet? Um, you were nominated for an Academy Award. Yes, for my first produced movie. Yes, for Can You Ever Forgive Me, starring Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant, uh, produced by Fox Searchlight Pictures. Mm -hmm. uh, Available on uh, Amazon streaming right now. Yes, yes, yes. It's and they did a bang up job with it. When I saw this, when I saw the final cut, I just couldn't believe how much I loved it. Not a single step did they take in the wrong direction. It was. Everything was ri even richer, and, and, and Mariel Heller, the director, is wonderful. A real, real talent. I was going to ask you about that, because as the writer, kind of your job is done once the, the screenplay is done. And how involved are you after you finished the screenplay? Are there, I mean, are they consulting with you, or do they just unveil it at the end? I mean, for me, it was funny, because I wrote this, I wrote it in 2011. Uh, and, you know, I was a very strange choice because I was getting all these meetings about children's shows because they hear puppets and they think, oh, <laughs> we'll, we'll put him on Barney or whatever. <laughs> and it was it sudden but uh, Bob Balaban, who's one of the producers of Can You Ever Forgive Me, had read a play of mine that was set in New York City called The Hiding Place that was about cranky artists. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, that's Lee, Lee Israel's voice, the lead character, mm -hmm. the woman who wrote the memoir that the, the movie's based on. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's spent, it was about a two and a half year process uh, writing uh, that movie. Wonderful, smart producers. They're not all smart, but again, audience forward producers uh, who really, really understood story. And for me, I was learning on my feet. I had written one terrible screenplay prior that was also based on a true story. Learned all my lessons from that. So for this one, I was I was ready to um, to figure out how it all works. And then it kept almost getting made. And then uh, Nicole Holofsener was going to direct, uh, and she did a rewrite that I adored. I loved what she she added to it. And then she ended up not directing for various reasons. And then Marielle took the script, and that's what she used. And uh, it was really kind of lovely, because in theater, I am there, like a worried mother bear, mm -hmm. uh, every single minute, all the way through, up until, you know, it's opening night and I can leave before the opening night performance starts because I'm done. Um, but with the, with the movie, it was it was really like this wonderful gift, this package. It was like Melissa McCarthy. What an interesting choice. Yes. She's the only choice. She's the only choice. She's wonderful at it. I, she was. And she's known for being a comedian. 
And this was a very serious role. Yes, but she's really funny. Yes. She's really funny at it. It's just a different angle. She's tragic funny, you know? It wasn't in your face. It was very, I, I don't know. We really enjoyed the movie. I'm so glad. I'm um, so glad. Yeah. It isn't Richard E. Grant wonderful? Yes. The, all of the casting was perfect. Mm -hmm. it, and you actually, when you went to the Academy Awards, you brought a uh, duck as your plus one. I did. I brought my friend Heidi Schreck, who I met in September 1989, uh, like our first week of, of you know, college. <laughs> and uh, I was a Lambda Chi Alpha. It was midnight. I got, I was, I pledged Lambda Chi Alpha <laughs> and Heidi pledged Tri Delta. And, you know, there were so many Tri-Delts that we doubled up with the Sigma News and had the party at the Sigma New Frat House. And I was sitting out on the front porch alone, drinking a beer. And Heidi came out uh, with a Sigma New. And we began, you know, snapping wisecracks back and forth. And uh, we've been friends ever since. And so uh, she went on to storm Broadway herself, even in a more major way. She she did a, What the Constitution Means to Me, uh, which you can now see on Amazon as well, uh, which just took the city by storm. And this was a couple years ago now. Uh, that also started off Broadway, moved to Broadway. You could not get a seat to Heidi's show. Um, and it was mostly Heidi on stage talking about herself, her life, uh, with with three, uh, three uh, wonderful other actors uh, with her, uh, playing some of the other parts. And, uh, you know, by the time the Oscars rolled around, she'd been a big hit off Broadway. And I thought, well, what a great date to bring is it would be Heidi. And it was, we had a blast and it was fun for me because I went back in the closet. Uh, I was pretending to be heterosexual with my date, Kip Fagan's <laughs> wife, Heidi Schrag. <laughs> Kip, Kip, I, I asked Heidi's permission to ask Kip's <laughs> Kip's permission to to take Heidi. What was that like going to the Oscars? Was it, I mean, like, was it exciting? Was it stressful? <laughs> was it just weird? It was the end of the award season. It was the last one. And I had been to a bunch of them already. Uh, the BAFTAs in London, uh, Spike Lee won there too. Uh, it being beat by Spike Lee, you don't, you feel no disappointment at all because it's like, my God, I was, <laughs> you know, I was even considered with Spike Lee. Um, the BAFTAs were wonderful in London. Uh, so much fun. You know, the Writers Guild Award, the Independent Spirit Award, and, and Nicole and I won both. Of, or I hate the word won. We, we got the trophy. How do you say it? We were recognized. Award, we were recognized. Thank you. You know, in, in, in a category with all kinds of incredible writers and incredible movies, uh, we went to the, you know, all kinds of them, the the um, AARP awards, like to the Oscars. <laughs> I, I was I was pretty well prepped and it was yeah. it was wonderful fun. You know, they send the you know, I got my my parents came. I, I begged the Oscar people to to get seats for my parents. I said, you know, they're very they're very small and portable with television ready smiles <laughs> and they got them two seats. So we all went in a big black SUV through the uh, the. You know, there are the protesters and the religious protesters and all these people. And you go in and it was it was a blast. It was really, really fun. That sounds awesome. Your parents are still in Coos Bay. They're still in the house I grew up in. Yes, indeed. They're great. Yeah, they said, you know, uh, when I was, you know, going to college, my, my, my parents said, Jeff, we will support you in anything you choose to do in life. 
as long as you don't choose to be a lawyer, because my dad's a lawyer. <laughs> my dad is himself an attorney. And at first I thought, well, it must be, you know, that the, the industry has changed, but only in recent years did, did, am, I, am I wondering, is it because I would make a terrible lawyer? <laughs> because, because I would. Nice. Um, but uh, no, my parents are great. I think it's really important to, to let your kids, you know, figure out what they're going to do with themselves. And even if it seems like an insane risk, like my career did, uh, just be there for them. You know, if they need to quit and do something else, they'll figure it out. Well, definitely. I mean, is it true that your parents uh, nudged you toward an English major as opposed to theater just just to be on the safe side? They may have nudged me some, but I don't think it was terrible because I love English and I'm grateful I got an English degree because, you know, it, uh, I, there are things that I would do later that I drew from mm -hmm. that I learned. You know, I, I went to the Robert D. Clark Honors College uh, and between, you know, the, the English department and the Honors College, I got a great education and I minored in theater. So I did plays and took the acting classes. I really I, it was a wonderful smorgasbord of an education that I got at the U of O. I really, I really, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Well, I love it. Next time you're in Oregon and uh, there's not a pandemic, you should um, come visit us. I would love to. I love to visit. Well, you definitely call me. We'll work that out for sure. Fabulous. You're very successful in the Broadway world. And then now you've moved and you're doing Hollywood stuff. What's the difference between those two scenes? I have, I'm, I'm biting my tongue just a little bit because uh, I, I have to be... Uh, uh, I just want my tone to be right when I say this. I find much more support in the world of television and film than I did on Broadway, the way that Broadway has become in recent years. Hmm. Um, and I'm glad I never, I thought I would really be, be doing theater for the rest of my life, but then the movie happened and it was like, God went, you know, Jeff, <laughs> we're going to push you over here. Yeah. So, and I'm really, really, I'm, I'm really grateful to be working in this field and people, the stereotype is, oh, you leave this theater and you sell out. But frankly, my artistic soul was dying on Broadway the way it has become. Um, they don't put the audience first anymore. It's, it's uh, you know, I, I call them reverse Rumpelstiltskins uh, <laughs> there, you know, and, and they, people grabbing for more pie than their share. It's very, it, it feels very sort of provincial and petty mm -hmm. and i'm not saying this because i'm a hollywood hotshot because i'm not that either one you know that one movie doesn't make me a hotshot in any way um well actually i'm gonna disagree with you there because i'm gonna say it kind of does i think you okay so the movie i was just looking it up it was nominated for 96 different nominations and um, when I looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 98%. That is my proudest more than any award, more than any award. It is that audience. Yes. That audience thing. That, that is what I am the proudest of because critics and awards and all of that, you know, we look back at Oscar things that won Oscars years ago and it's like, why on earth did that win over, you know, all about Eve or whatever. But, but uh, right. you, you can't, you can't, you always, always, always have to put the audience first. They're the mm -hmm. ones you're tickling. And so the fact that so many people love the movie, uh, that is that is to me the, the the trophy that I carry in my heart. Well, I was just looking at your Wikipedia page and I was really struck by the fact that they don't just call you a playwright. Everything they say about you, they be, they're always sure to 
say that you're a gay playwright. And um, how dare they suggest? <laughs> like there was one article I saw in the Advocate. Wikipedia tried to link to it, but it didn't show the link. But it was about something. Which article is it? Um, okay, I'm gonna the look Jay up. Leno thing. Was no, it the Jay Leno although there was a reference to the Jay Leno thing, and I don't know what the Jay Leno thing actually really is. This was God. This was in 2006. I'll just give you the brief rundown on that. Uh, I, it was around the time Brokeback Mountain came out, mm -hmm. whatever whatever year that was. Mm -hmm. And Jay Leno was doing all of these very tiresome jokes about gay people. And I thought Brokeback Mountain was this unbelievably important film that mm -hmm. said all these incredibly important things. And he was reducing it to like gay people doing YMCA on horses and stuff like that. And I just got really sick of it. So I wrote him a letter uh, that took me about 45 minutes to write. And I hit send and I sent it to info, info at the thetonightshow.com because that's the only access I had. And then I sent it to three other friends who I thought, thought might want to read it. And one of them was Larry Kramer, the legendary gay activist and AIDS activist. And, and uh, Gary, uh, uh, he sent it to his entire email address book. And Larry has a formidable group around him. And suddenly the whole thing just exploded. And then I was on CNN two days later being interviewed by Soledad O'Brien about the letter I wrote Jay Leno. It was a total trip. Wow. And then a week later, it was all done. Bill O'Reilly wanted to have me on, and I declined. Howard Stern invited me on, and I said yes. It was it was a trip. Well, I'm going to look that up. Oh, I love Howard Stern. I, I think Howard Stern's the best. You know, and my thing about gay jokes is I love a good gay joke. I said this to him. I love a good gay joke. But at the same time, I love a good gay joke. You just can't be dated um, and rely on tired old stereotypes because gay people have a lot more variety. But there's a lot of funny stuff about us, as there's funny, funny stuff about everybody, you know. So yes, that was a total trip. So I don't mind. I don't mind being the the gay forward thing so much. I mean, I I, I can write in any any voice. I'm not limited to writing just gay characters or doing gay theater. I never want to write for a niche audience. I never want to write for a gay audience. I want to write for everybody, which takes a lot more legwork and a lot more care and consideration in how can I reach everyone with this mm -hmm. story? I am just looking at um, the advocate, Jeff Witte's Broadway bound Tales of the City musical. Oh, Tales, yes. Just how gay will it be is the tagline. <laughs> it was pretty gay. It was pretty gay. There was a moment in the bathhouse. There was, there was you know, but you know, it's all, it's said in 1976, 77 um, in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what took a lot more consideration wasn't the gay aspect, but the transgender aspect, because a major character, I'm not going to say who for those who don't know the stories, but a major character in Tells the City mm -hmm. is transgender. And how to tell that story now, it would be even different if I was telling it now, because there's so much more cultural awareness of, of uh, trans folk. But um, so for me, the, the challenge was how to get the trans material across. And I remember... Last time I spoke to you, I don't know if you're allowed to talk about this. I'll edit it out if not. But you were going to pitch a show, a drag queen crime show. Oh, no, it's not a drag queen crime show. I mean, there are, there are tra lots of trans characters in it. Um, and I suppose drag queens as well. Uh, but no, it's it's uh, I mean, we can talk about it. I, it's out right now. I'm feeling very good about it. Uh, it's a TV show because I, I've decided to just do one thing in every medium because it always goes really well the first time. So now I'm going to television and then I'll do a hip hop album and uh, start a cult <laughs> and 
<laughs> You're going to be an EGOT. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Was that Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony? Yes. I have a lowercase O in my EGOT right now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, so, so this TV show I've been thinking about, gosh, I mean, really, since even since I was at U of O, it's called Bad Fairy. Uh, about a drug dealing middle aged gay prostitute who lives in New Orleans, <laughs> and then when you whatever you take from that, you know description, I then unwind the whole thing, uh, and it's it's really 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 fun. It's it's hilarious. Uh, you know, I, I I wrote wrote the characters so the audience would be able to tune in and see their best friends and see what their friends were up to, because I think that's really important. All of the characters are likable. I don't come, come at it from a place of judgment whatsoever. I have had quite a checkered past of my own. It, there's a song lyric in that very, my record's decked with a checkered history. <laughs> um, and I, I have that as well. So, so you know, it, it's, it's me taking a lot of my time in the underworld throughout my life and using it and making comedy of it and make, putting a lump in people's throats. He knows he's preposterous as a middle-aged drug dealing gay prostitute, but it's the best he's got <laughs> at the moment, you know. And and uh, you know, I'm writing it for myself. I'm an actor too. I trained at NYU's graduate acting program was the top three. It was NYU, Juilliard, and Yale. Um, and I got in, you know, when I took a green tortoise bus to uh, New York City. I, you know, worked for a year and got into NYU and got a wonderful actor training that unlocked the writer in me. Because uh, we were doing improv all day. And that is all that writing is, is improv with a keyboard. Hmm. Trusting yourself to just get it out there and you can go back and fix anything later. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I'll be, I'll be playing Ariel, who is the, the titular bad fairy in Bad Fairy. And he's got a very colorful uh, group of friends, to say the least. <laughs> every color, every sexual and gender persuasion. <laughs> I know that COVID has really put a, a wrench in production schedules and stuff like that. But when when can we expect to see Ariel on our TVs? I don't know. It, right now, it's I wrote a uh, I wrote the pilot, which was a hoot, and then I had so much fun. I wrote episode two, which has a big musical number, and I did the lyrics, and I'm really proud of them. Um, and it's gone. It's right now. It's out of the studios, and this is when the producers clam up and do their thing. So I'm. I started by just pursuing them relentlessly for updates, but now I said, just when there's good news, let me know. But these things take forever. It takes forever to get things read, but it's gotten a really, really wonderful response so far. And some great networks seem to be interested. So I am keeping my fingers crossed. Oh, I am keeping my fingers crossed too. It sounds fantastic. And you have such a great track record. I, they would be fools to, to pass it. <laughs> you know, it was interesting when you were kind of talking about your artistic process and that it's kind of um, improv, but with the keyboard. And it, it got me thinking a little bit about, I know that people have a certain like stereotype in their mind about artistic people and artists. And it's actually, you have to have quite a lot of discipline to be creative and prolific and good um most people don't just vomit out genius no. um it takes a lot of work it takes a lot of effort to make something feel effortless when you're sitting in a movie or a play or anything and the time is just going by without you even thinking about it it doesn't even occur to you that you're sitting in a theater seat or on your sofa that you are immersed in the world it's easy to go well that that must have been fun to make usually the opposite is is exactly the case that <laughs> you know, with my in every creative team I've been on, uh, and I'll I'll leave a creative team if this isn't the case. Uh, every single member of the team has a say. Every single member of the team has a veto that is the veto, 
which means that every single person, the composers, the director, the, the music supervisor, me, everyone, if anyone objects to anything, you have to change it. You have to fix it. And that is uh, part of the rigor of the artist's life that people don't consider. Um, and that is what makes the difference between so-so and a hit, mm -hmm. that kind of attention to detail. And people also think of artists as, oh, I'm inspired. I'll just put this, you know, put the, the out there in the yeah. world. But no, there is a there is a rigor and a craft. There is there's uh, there is a craft to storytelling. Mm -hmm. I could go through and I could give you twenty rules of storytelling. Ooh, ooh, I, I would love to hear a couple actually. Okay, well here's one. I mean, this is a hard rule, and it's one I learned myself. You have ten minutes from lights up to hook the audience and make them care. If you have not given them a reason to care about anything, you've lost them for the rest of the time, you cannot get them back. Mm -hmm. So you have to build in hooks that are universal hooks because you're reaching a broad audience. You have to speak to everybody. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's one of those things. You have to really put yourself in the audience's seat and go, okay, I'm Betty Blinken, a soccer mom from Ohio. I'm, you know, Stephanie Cratchit, who, uh, you know, scholar from Yale, all of them. You have to speak to every single person um, and make them care with the universal hook. For example, can you ever forgive me? On one hand, she is a lesbian cat lady forger who lives on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. <laughs> and you think, well, who's, who can relate to her? But when I read her book on page five, I was going, oh, this is, everyone is going to get this because everybody feels behind the times. Everyone feels like those young whippersnappers or, or you know, you, you just want to throw a drink in their face. Everyone, uh, mm -hmm. everyone, feels left out. Everyone feels unappreciated. Those are the keys. And if you see how they're laid in in those first 10 minutes, you care about her and that will carry you all the way through. That is one of the rules of storytelling. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's musical storytelling and uh, people laugh at musicals and I do too, God knows, because they are most often not so great. But when they're great, there's nothing more wonderful. Mm -hmm. with, a, with a musical, you know, with this, a play or a screenplay, you are the storyteller. But in a musical, you are this, the book writer, me, the script writer, is the storyteller balancing words that I am composing with music written by others into an effortless, bubbly, effervescent evening of theater mm -hmm. that just moves forward. It is your, it's always a, just a half step ahead of you. So you, the audience, are sitting erect in your seat, you know, following along. Like uh, musicals are the hardest, and they have a ton more rules to make them fly. They are incredibly difficult. That Tales of the City, I wish I had one more crack at it because we didn't quite nail it uh, in San Francisco. I wish it, it, it will come back. I, I wish it would, it's a wonderful show, but it's the first one. I, it, I don't know of any musical beyond Into the Woods that is balanced mm -hmm. five major storylines. And that is the challenge, and that is the art, is how to weave them together. Well, you're very ambitious in your projects, to say the least. I mean, you know, I've talked to a lot of artists who say, for example, after they've created something really fantastic, they feel um, almost like anxiety that, it, that it's the best thing they'll ever do, and they'll never be able to top themselves. And I just see you fearlessly going after it. At least that's how it looks. Is that how it feels? I was joking with uh, I was joking with a friend. Um, she described me as as this, I, and she said this. I didn't agree. She said a winner. You, you know, you you're, you're like a winner. And I said, no, I'm not a winner. It's actually, I I have a block 
where I just keep going and churning forward. Just, you know, when pretty much anyone else would throw in the towel, I'm not magical, I'm not special. I work my ass off and I do take those big risks because I want the show that pops to the audience. And I never want to write mm-hmm. the same thing. I think that keeps me from the fear of repeating myself or, or of not matching myself because mm-hmm. I've done puppets. Now I want to do cheerleaders. Now I want to do, <laughs> you know, San Francisco <laughs> Bohemians. Now I want to do, you know, Elizabethans. And and, and uh, that to me, it is the discovery of the material as I'm writing it that is the true joy. So I never worry about, I, I feel like my best work is ahead of me. Because I, I know I know so much now about storytelling. And, you know, on Broadway, it just became impossible to get my voice to the audience without a bunch of interference. Uh, and when I say interference, I don't mean notes from producers or anything. I mean, actual things that destroy the work. Like politics, you mean? Yes. Or, you know, I had a show that got packaged where everyone I was working with was fired and replaced with my agent's clients. And that was horrifying because it destroyed the integrity of the work. I knew the audience wouldn't want to see what was left because the work was destroyed. It was a heartbreaking experience. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and it's got to be tough, too, because there's just so much of yourself in the work and so much blood, sweat and tears. And it's personal. It's you got to I mean, for it to be this authentic work, you have to dig deep within yourself and pull out something real. And yes, yes, the show in question was was my my baby. It was it was the purest expression of myself. Well, I appreciate your resilience and um, all of your work. I'm really looking forward to the Bad Fairy. It'll be a scream. You'll see me in my all together within 10 minutes of the, of the, of the credits. <laughs> well, Jeff, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks, Michelle. It's good to see you again. My gosh, we have to make it there. And can I give one last bit of advice to any students? Yes, please. Follow your curiosity because of the, your curiosity, by that, I mean that thing that you do that makes the time go by pleasurably, that thing that you can't wait to get back to, that is your talent. Follow your curiosity, and it can be a long and winding road, cobblestones and whatnot, but at the end of the road is a little bag of money to provide sustenance for the next part of the journey. So, <laughs> so yeah, follow your curiosity, because I, when I got on that green tortoise bus, I had no idea I would be doing what I'm doing now. You know, go through those open doors, see what's in there, because um, you never know what talents might emerge, you know? I love that. That's great advice. You might just win the Tony on your first try. You might just, you might just, or yes, you never ever know. Life is funny that way. Stay safe, all right? You too. (laughs) Go Ducks. Go Ducks. You can check out the show notes to find out information about upcoming virtual events, how to follow us on social media, and to get the info about alumni happenings. Keep in touch, and thanks for listening to The Duck Stops Here.